The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Well, open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 2. The book of Hebrews chapter 2. And as you turn there, a little background on why we're in Hebrews 2 and the bulletin says Philippians 2. And that is because I did call an audible last night and uh, thinking about what we're going to study this morning on the Sunday before Christmas. And I must confess that was in large part prompted by a conversation I had with uh, Mercy Nichols earlier in the week. Uh, We were talking about, you're reading through Hebrews, and that passage that we talked about in the waiting room launched me on a meditation time the rest of the week on, on the, the meaning of Christmas and answering the question, why did God become a man? Uh, so um, when people in, interact with you and they share things that they're learning in the scripture, don't take that as anything except God speaking to you about what's important in his word that he wants you to hear in that moment. It's fair to say that no event in human history has been given more attention than the birth of Jesus Christ. It was so important that every single other event afterwards was dated by that simple event. And yet no event has been more misinterpreted than the birth of Jesus Christ. We just sang a song that is the most demanding question that anyone should or could ask and the question that everyone must answer. What child is this? Who is this baby? When you think about the the theology that we sing in all those Christmas carols, it is audacious. Just this last week, I heard of an elementary school that had tried to re-edit Silent Night in such a way that Jesus was left out. Well, that's disingenuous at best. What child is this? The reason that the answer is so easily ignored is also found in another carol. I think we sang it last week on O Holy Night. You know that line, long lay the world in what? In sin and error pining. It's an old English word. You know what the word pining means? Longing, anticipating. Till he appeared and then the soul felt its worth. I wonder how many would make that assessment of Christmas and that assessment of their own life that the worth and worldview of our entire existence is defined by that babe in a manger. I think the reason that the message of Christmas and Christ and his atoning death have so little impact on us is because we don't see ourselves as those who in sin and error are pining. But I want to spend some time with you this morning with some friends. These are Christian friends, and these are friends that we need to be acquainted with. They were in a very different situation than we are this morning and this three days before Christmas. These are Christians in a tiny little house church. That was the group that the book of Hebrews was written to, addressed to. They were overwhelmed with their sense of their own defenselessness in a world in which it was a criminal uh, activity and a capital offense to be a Christian. They would have to change their meeting place often, move from this house to that house, from this place to that place. 
knowing that every time there was a knock on the door, it could mean another believer or someone interested in the gospel to come to meet with him, or it could mean the knock of a Roman centurion to lead them away to execution. These believers were bewildered. They were discouraged. They were disenfranchised. They needed something to pick their spirits up, and that's why this book was written. They were frightened, and they needed encouragement. So the writer to the Hebrews writes this book, and this book is different than any other New Testament book. It's a sermon. It's a real sermon with a beginning, an introduction, a a set of, of content points, and a clear conclusion that the writer works through. Some people call the book of Hebrews the hinge of the Old and New Testament. There's more understanding of the Old Testament required in the book of Hebrews than any other book in the New Testament. And yet it explains more fully the Old Covenant that has now become fulfilled in the New Covenant more than any other book as well. The theology of salvation revealed in the Old Testament is like a shadow, but the coming of Jesus, the writer says, is the substance A little context for the passage we're looking at this morning. Verses 5 through 9 encourage us to contemplate Jesus in his solidarity with the human family. William Lane says, It's the exalted Son of God made into the human condition, and especially in his liability to death, his uh, his own in order to achieve for them the glorious destiny designed by God. In verses 10 to 13, Jesus is presented as the champion, the, the chief who came to the aid of all those oppressed people of God in the Old Testament and those who have believed in Christ in the New. He identifies himself with us as our representative and in doing so paves the way to heaven with his own life and with his own death. Then you find your way in chapter 2 to verses 14 to 18, which is some of the deepest, the most dense, the most rich, and the most profound section in the theology of the entire Scripture. We're going to move across these verses with a bit of a snorkel. It really requires a scuba tank, and we should spend weeks here, not minutes. It is so rich. It is so precious. And in the clutter of Christmas, to step back and say, what is the theology of Christmas? You can look at it as as this. The Christmas season is all about the wrapping. The message of Jesus is the actual present. A.W. Pink says this. What makes it so difficult for us to grasp the wonder of the divine incarnation is that there's nothing else which we can go to to compare it. There's no analogy which in any sense resembles it. It it stands unique, alone in all its solitary grandeur, end quote. I mean, can you really try to explain to your children, God becoming a man is like, there's no comparison. There's no analogy. There's no simile. And I have to confess, when we come to the the incarnation, I feel like that great Puritan preacher Thomas Hooker said. These these are just profound words. I, I go to them often when I look at the cross and I look at the incarnation. He said this, Dangerous it were for the feeble brain of man to wade very far into the doings of the Most High. Whom, although to be known, although to know be life and joy to make mention of his name, yet our soundest knowledge is to know that we may know him not indeed as he is, neither can we know him. He's beyond us. And our safest, I love this, our safest eloquence, 
concerning him is our silence. When we confess that his glory is inexplicable and his greatness far above our capacity to reach. In order to understand Hebrews 2, 14 to 18, I think you have to go to Hebrews 3, 1 and then move backwards. Remember, there are no chapter divisions in, in the original scripture. There's no uh, verse divisions. This is the conclusion of the verses we're going to be considering. Therefore, based on what we're going to study here in a moment, therefore, chapter 3, verse 1, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, two words. What are they? Consider Jesus. Contemplate Christ. Think deeply of the Son of God, the incarnate one. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Well, how can we, how should we consider Jesus? Said another way, why did Jesus become a man? Why did the second person of the Trinity condescend and become a human? Take on flesh. This text gives us three answers. The first is in verses 14 to 16. Why did Jesus become a man, number one, to relieve us from the fear of death? To relieve us from the fear of death. Therefore, verse 14 says, since the children, that's people, that's humans, share, that's the word for fellowship, koinonia, they share, in flesh and blood, since people have flesh and blood, since the children share in that, he himself, Jesus himself, likewise also partook of the same. That term flesh and blood, those two words are joined together five times in the New Testament. It's a humbling expression emphasizing the weakness of flesh and the limitations of man. We have flesh that will eventually go into the ground and become dust. We have blood that can be shed, which represents life, that will all be snuffed out. Remember in Ephesians 6, uh, 12, how this term flesh and blood is contrasted with the mightier powers that the Christian struggles against. We don't struggle in flesh and blood against the demonic realm. This term describes the human situation. It means that God actually took on flesh and blood. Think of it. The eternal, immortal, unspeakably precious deity took on frail and fragile flesh and blood. Frailty, dependency. Mortality of the human condition. It's as though the writer is saying, these children, these men, these people are subject to death. They have the possibility of dying. And just like the condition of all men, they're liable to sufferings and sorrows and death. And Jesus took on that condition. Think about that moment of Setting aside the scepter of heaven and taking hold of your mother's finger. God became a man. No less God, and yet 100% man. Theologians describe it like this. When you look at the divine equation of the incarnation, it's easy to think of it, of it being that God was less than God when he became man. 
Mathematically speaking, it's easy to think of it as the, the incarnation as this God minus something. The incarnation is not God minus anything. It's God plus humanity. It's God adding flesh. As Wesley wrote, God in flesh, veiled in flesh, the Godhead, see, he became like us. He became like us so we could become like him. He had to first become flesh so that we could become partakers of his divine nature. For us to have his spirit, he had to assume our flesh. For us to be joined with him in one spirit, he had to be joined with us in flesh. For us to be remade in his image, he became made in ours. For us to take on a divine nature, which we will one day in glory, he had to take on human nature first. The Savior became the Son of God, that the sons of men might become the sons of God. Most specifically, Jesus became a man to take on flesh and blood, listen, so he could die. He took on life so that there would be a life that could die, that could come to an end. God, as pure and Holy Spirit, came to die. God, who cannot die, came to die. God, who cannot cease to be, came in flesh and blood so that he could have the experience of death. Took on a heartbeat so it could stop. He drew breath so that his lungs would be emptied one final time on the cross. Now, this Greek word partook is a really interesting word. It literally means to take hold of, to lay hold of, to grasp. It was used when Peter was sinking in the water. It says he laid hold of Jesus. He grasped him. It was used when the blind man took Jesus by the hand in Mark 8, 23. To lay hold of, to took. Jesus took hold of, he laid hold of, he grabbed, he embraced flesh and blood. He voluntarily took on human flesh. A little bit more about the Greek, it's reflexive. He himself speaks of the fact that he wasn't coerced to do this. He voluntarily became a man. One of my favorite Puritan theologians, John Owen, says this, that the Son of God should take part in human nature with the children is the greatest and most admirable effect of divine love, wisdom, and grace. This mystery is the one that the atheists scoff at, deluded Christians deny, but the angels adore, and the church professes, and believers find the benefit and comfort of it. You understand that the real meaning of Christmas is scoffed at, is laughed upon, is denied and reinterpreted, and in our generation is relegated to the realm of kind of superstitious, mythical nonsense, just like Santa Claus. Simply put, for us to become partakers in the divine nature and salvation, he himself had to be made a partaker in flesh like us. Why, though? Why did this have to happen? Wasn't there another way? I mean, didn't we really just need Jesus for a weekend? Why this whole life? Why to take on flesh and blood? The next phrase tells us, that 
through death. These simple three words encapsulate the meaning of Christmas. And it lasts way beyond the Christmas season. You see, Christmas is a a, a simple narrative and a sentimental story. But as we've said over and over, it's just that. It's just a sad story of a baby being born in a mean estate, in a sad context, outside and in, in a cave, being put in in a manger. It's just a sad story unless you understand that that baby would grow up and become a man who would die on the cross as the God-man and the Savior for sinners. But going backwards, Easter is just a sad story of a man dying unless we know his identity. And the Christmas narrative tells us that it was God himself taking on flesh. Christmas is a compass that points to the cross. Last part of verse 14. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Some have tried to make light of the fear of death. Remember reading a few years ago, Woody Allen says this. It's not that I'm afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. It's funny. It's cute, isn't it? Somerset Mon, death is very dull and a dreary affair. And my advice to you is that you have nothing to do with it. Well, that's interesting rhetoric but it won't make it go away. When I was a kid, I had several odd um, uh, habits. My mom could grow very weary telling me of all the the shenanigans of little Ricky Holland growing up. And I mean, one of her favorite stories was that I would try to outrun things. We lived on the corner of a street. Cars would drive down and turn on our street. And over and over, I would stand in one side of the yard and for hours, at least she tells me, I would race the cars to the end of the yard. It's some kind of sick disease. (laughs) She used to say that I would always try to juke and fake and outrun my shadow. You know, there's some sick stuff going on there. (laughs) Try to move and outwit your shadow. You can't outwit your shadow. You can never outrun your shadow. In the same way, you and I will never outrun death. Martin Luther, he who fears death or is not willing to die sufficiently a Christian, he who, is not, who, he who fears death or is not willing to die is not sufficiently Christian. And yet such people lack faith in the resurrection and love this life more than the life to come. Similarly, John Calvin, although we must still meet death, let us nevertheless be calm and serene and living and and dying when we have Christ going on before us. If anyone cannot set his mind at rest by disregarding death, that man should know that he has not yet gone far enough in faith in Christ. Now, this is interesting. It says that we were subject as slaves are to the fear of death. I read that the fear of death is the most common factor in every single phobia that people have. It's somehow related to dying. That makes sense. But it says that Satan has a power in this passage. Satan rules us, how? By the fear of death. Do you see that? Think about this, though. What power does Satan have? How does Satan actually work in this world? 
I think that the enemy, the, the Satan and the demons, they laugh at this whole horror movie industry that's designed to scare us. Satan doesn't want to scare you. He wants to deceive you. He wants you to fear the wrong thing and not be afraid of the right thing. John 8, 44 says he's the father of lies, meaning his primary tool is to lie, to deceive us, to make us think wrongly about the right things that we should. He lies to us about death. Satan lies to you and me about the coming judgment. Oh, it's not that bad. Everyone will be uh, saved after they die. If you're good enough and you're better than you were bad enough, then you'll, you'll go to heaven. That's a lie. He also lies to us about the character of the judge. Uh, he's like the, the traffic court judge who, who has a good day and dismisses our charge and says, you don't have to pay for your, your offense. He lies to us about its inevitability. Read of one mortician, funeral home director who signs all of his letters, eventually yours. It's not if, it's when. What does Hebrews 9 tell us? It's appointed for man once to die, then the judgment. And he wants to lie to us about the resurrection. If he can lie to us about the resurrection, then we were, were really quick to make this life everything. If this is the only life we're ever going to live, if, if, some, if as some writers have said, this is your best life now, do you want your best life to be now when it's going to end in a few years? Our best life is in eternity if we know Christ. Satan wields the fear of death over us by lying about its nature and by lying about its solution. I love that passage. We don't have time to turn there now. Philippians 1, where Paul, Paul is talking to the Philippians. It is, it is the most bizarre passage in the whole Bible. You can see him. He's talking to them, and then he just starts talking to himself. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It sounds simple enough. Then he says... Well, I'm paraphrasing. He says, you know, I would rather depart. I would rather die and go be with Christ. But I know that God would have me stay here for your benefit to teach you and encourage you and instruct you. And, and I know that I want to go depart to be with Jesus. I would rather die, but I know for your sake he's going to let me live, so I guess I'll stay and live. His consolation is, well, I guess I'll stay and be as faithful as I can, but I would much rather depart and be with Jesus. This is a man who has not bought the lie of Satan that this is the only life you have now. Think of it like this. Can you imagine a person who is engaged, who's quite content to stay engaged and who never wants to get married? When you see engaged couples, they're running into the walls in love. We can't wait to get married. That's the way it's supposed to be. Can you imagine an engaged couple saying, oh, we're just engaged, and we love the state of engagement so much, I don't even think we're going to get married in this life. We're just going to stay engaged our whole lives because engagement is so wonderful. Ephesians says that this life is our engagement as a Christian to Christ and that heaven is the consummation. Satan doesn't want us to believe that. So we fear death instead of seeing that death is our on-ramp into heaven. That's what it's like for a Christian who treasures life more than the resurrection. They believe the lie. 
What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15? Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Can I ask you a difficult question on the Sunday before Christmas? Have you considered at all that it's possible that your or my tombstone might read died in fill in the date 2014 it is that strange and curious fact that everyone wants to go to heaven and nobody wants to die verse 16 for assuredly he does not give help to the angels but gives help to the descendant of Abraham. We won't spend much time here. Understand this that the angels, when they sinned, that was it. The demons, when they sinned, never got an offer of salvation, never got an offer of forgiveness, never got an offer of mercy. They sinned, they were eternally bound in that sinful state, which is why 1 Peter tells us the angels look at heaven and they scratch their head and wonder and say, What kind of God is this who would forgive sin? He never forgave any of our kind. John Brown says, he is not the savior of angels, but of the elect family of men. We are lost in astonishment when we allow our minds to rest on the number and dignity of those whom he does not lay hold of, and the comparative as well as the real vileness of those whom he does take hold of. He gives help to the descendants of Abraham. That's in the book of Hebrews described as those who understand and know the gospel. Why did Jesus become a man? Why Christmas? So he could relieve us from the fear of death. You remember what George Whitfield said? He said about the resurrection, until God calls me home, I'm invincible. When we're relieved from the fear of death, we're initiated into the realm of ministry and dying to self. Why did he become a man? To relieve us from the fear of death. Number two, to rescue us from the wrath of God. To rescue us from the wrath of God. Verse 17. He had to be made like his brethren in all things. Why? So that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Verse 17 rewinds the tape all the way back to the sacrificial system. Here we find the reason he had to be like his brethren in all things, meaning in the full humiliation of humanity. So he could become a priest. That wonderful reality that he is the mediator between us and God. He had two natures, divine and human. Two experiences, God and man. He fully understands the totality of divine sovereignty He is God, and he fully understands the vulnerability and helplessness of humanity as a man. Look over chapter 4, verse 14 for a moment. Flip the page. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. I love verse 54. 
We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help during our temptation, during our time of need. You know, he understands do you ever think in your moment of temptation, no one has ever been tempted like this? I am alone like this. No one struggles like this. Not only is that not true, because 1 Corinthians 10 tells us there's no temptation but that is common to man. But remember this. In every category of possible sin, every category of possible sin, Jesus was tempted. You say, in every single sin? No, every category. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Read, Roman, read Matthew chapter 4. Those were the three temptations that Satan gave him. And, and he passed. He understands our weakness. The climax of this argument is made in the term propitiation. Jesus' priesthood, priest offers sacrifices, is different than any other kind of priesthood. The priest offers a sacrifice for the people. Jesus not only offers the sacrifice, he is the sacrifice, right? He is the Lamb of God. I love that picture of John the Baptist. As Jesus is approaching to be baptized, he points to his cousin and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of you. He became a man to rescue us from the wrath of God becoming by becoming our sacrifice, fully absorbing the wrath of God for those who would believe, for those who would have faith. There's a third reason. He came to relieve us from the fear of death, to rescue us from the wrath of God. A third reason Jesus became a man, a third reason for Christmas is this, to release us from the power of temptation. To release us from the power of temptation. Now we join what we read in Hebrews 4, here in Hebrews 2, verse 18. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. The temptations that Jesus faced were real. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. But this gives us a greatest, greater insight into Jesus suffering through temptation. He was tempted in all ways that we were, but he was tempted in a way that we were not. He was tempted in his suffering. How was Jesus tempted in his suffering? To understand that, you've got to rewind the tape back to the Garden of Gethsemane where he was tempted to not drink the cup. Father, if there's any way, if there's another way, please take this cup from me. What cup was that? Go back to Zechariah 12. That was the cup of the divine wrath that he drunk for us. He was greatest, his greatest temptation was in his moment of suffering where he was faced with the temptation not to go to the cross. And even ask the Father if there is another way than the cross. And I think for the first time in the history of the Trinity, three times he prays and three times his prayers are met with silence. It's a mystery. I, I can't unpack that. 
He was tempted in that which he suffered. You know what I love about the last part of that verse? Why? So he could help us. So that he could come to the aid of those who are tempted. Like us, his heart was subject to the things like love, joy, fear, sorrow, shame, and pain as a human. His body was subject to hunger, thirst, pain, cold, discomfort, and even death itself. But no part of his experience made him able to sin. This is where we get into this great theological nuance called the impeccability of Christ. Could he have sinned? Well, no, he's God. Well, then was his temptation real? I would suggest that his temptation was worse because he couldn't sin. He was devoid of any inward disposition or inclination towards the least evil, but our temptation comes from within us. His came from without him. And again, this greatest suffering was in Gethsemane at the garden. We meet our greatest temptation in the same way. There's no greater temptation than to doubt the sufficiency of the death of Christ for sin. That's the worst doubt, that's the worst sin that anyone could ever make, is to doubt and despair that Jesus' death is enough to save sinners. This is the temptation to ignore grace, to ignore mercy, to lean on our own works, to lean on our own righteousness for gaining God's approval. And it's just utterly impossible, as Romans has taught us in previous months. But look at the last part. He's able to come to our aid. There's no temptation to commit, no sin for which he is not able to give us victory. Sins of the mind, sins of the body, sins of the heart. This is the practical side of the cross. The hope of Christ in the manger at Christmas is that he would grow up and understand temptation, be able to run, willingly run to our aid so that we might not yield to that same temptation. The incarnation of Jesus Christ, the incarnation of God in flesh was so unparalleled that the angels descended to proclaim the glory of the newborn Savior. There's lots of prophets born in Israel. No announcement from the angels for them. His life would be so precious that the angels would rush from heaven to tell a captive audience. And isn't it interesting that the captive audience wasn't Herod? wasn't Pilate, wasn't Caesar, wasn't the leaders of the world. It was shepherds, humble shepherds. The God of the universe humbled himself with the discomfort of dirty diapers. It's remarkable. So what? Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider, meditate on, think about Jesus. Listen, if you're facing any kind of difficulty, internal, external, physical, emotional, spiritual, any difficulty, 
Jesus is ready to run to aid your temptation so you can face that difficulty without any sin, any physical infirmity, any emotional struggle. If you're, can I say this? If you're aging, if you're looking at the rest of your life and measuring it in months and years, not decades, he is ready to run to help you understand that there does not need to be a fear of death. If you're wrestling with sin, he runs. He doesn't walk to your aid. If you, and fill in the blank, no matter the struggle, he is willing, he is able, he came to experience our temptations so that he could run to aid us. Why? So that we would not sin, we would glorify God, and that holiness would help us diminish the fear of death. He would say later, the Hebrew, uh, writer of the Hebrews would, that we need to pursue sanctification without which we will not see the Lord. You see how that all works together? He removes the fear of death so we know that eternity is in focus so that we can live life so that we are ready to die. Now, if you're a sensitive type, like we all should be, you should look at this passage and say, man, that's a lot of, that's a lot of heavy stuff. That's some, some bloody stuff for Christmas. He came so that he could die. It's the message of this passage, which is the theology behind the narrative of Christmas. Do you know him? Have you bowed the knee to this king who was born? Aaron led us in the song, A King Was Born. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord one day. Better to do that now in this earth, in this life, in salvation than one day in heaven, in judgment, to be then cast into hell from heaven's courts. Are you ready for Christmas? I'm not talking about presents under the tree. Are you ready to see that this is an epic theological pillar in history that's to serve as an epic theological pillar in our lives? Let's pray together. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead at sea. And because of that, Father, we want to hail and worship and honor Jesus Christ, who is incarnate deity. Thank you for this day, this Sunday before Christmas, when the world will honor that day. Lord, we know that history tells us that you were likely born in the spring, March or April. We also know that the date of December 25th has association with pagan ritual and dates. But how can we not rise and say the meaning of the Savior when the world circles this date to talk about his birth? 
give us particular reasons to worship, inform our worship with good thinking and theology, and help us to see that there is no temptation, but that Jesus rushes to our aid because he understands and because he cares. Help our families to be families of worship this week. For your glory, Father, and for our good. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.